Open your Bibles to Ruth, the book of Ruth. If you're not familiar with where Ruth is, uh, it would be following the book of Judges, so uh, about the eighth book in the Bible, I think, and, and uh, right before 1 Samuel. So if you're thumbing through the Old Testament and you see either Judges or Samuel, you either go forward or backward from there, and you should locate uh, the, the book of Ruth. We started a series last week. Um, titled Ruth, Resurrection, Righteousness, Redemption, and uh, we're picking up again this week where we left off in Ruth chapter 1, verse 6. We'll go through verse 18, and uh, the subtitle for, the ser- uh, for this message in the series is Counting the Cost, uh, a Discipleship Conversation. Counting the Cost, a Discipleship Conversation, and if you would, join me in, in reading the text. And I'm going to read this from the New International Version uh, here at the beginning. So, <clears throat> Ruth 1.6. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons? Who could become your, who could become your husbands? <clears throat> uh, return home, my daughters. I am too old and have another husband. Even if, I, even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, and Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we approach your word, uh, take this ancient story and Open our eyes to see and our ears to hear what it is saying to us today in our hearing. And through that, Lord, deliver us and transform us. In Jesus' name, amen. Dietrich Bonhoeffer began uh, his discourse about cheap grace versus costly grace this way. Cheap grace is the mortal enemy of our church. Our struggle today is grace, which is a cheap substitute for the real thing. In today's text, Ruth is a portrait 
of somebody who has encountered and experienced costly grace. She is a picture of a true disciple. The conversation between Naomi and Ruth is not dissimilar to conversations Jesus had with would-be disciples. Now this idea of Ruth as a picture of the church, to be more specific, and I would add to that Boaz, but we'll get to Boaz later in the story. But that idea of Ruth as a picture of the church, a foreshadowing, if you will, it's not new. Isidore of Seville in the 4th century expounded that point uh, at, at length. After an assault on cheap grace in Bonhoeffer's uh, writing, he begins his description of costly grace. He says this, Costly grace is the hidden treasure in the field for the sake of which people go and sell with joy everything they have. In my experience, far too often people are not selling all they have with joy because they're waiting for the treasure to be obvious and not hidden. But it's a hidden treasure that we sell everything for. You see, if, if we're waiting for it to be not so hidden, then we miss the whole point. It's hidden. Cheap grace says, ah, it's okay, just go ahead and wait. Costly grace says, nope. Sell everything you had while it remains hidden. Ruth has embraced costly grace, and she puts it on display by her obedience of faith, as Paul might call it. So we explore our text today under three headings. First, recognizing God's visitation. Recognizing God's visitation. Sorry, I have no fine alliteration for you today, just more to the point. Second, counting the cost. And finally, the faith that follows. The faith that follows. First, let's begin under our first heading, recognizing God's visitation. And let's, if you would, join me in verses 6 and 7 again. Now, I read the NIV. Now, the rest of the sermon, I'm going to go back and read it in the ESV. Uh, the NIV makes for much better English. It, it's just better English. Uh, but doing so can hide important things. The ESV is not concerned with English style. And, and so it, it reads... This way, for instance, in verses 6 and 7, more literal to the, to the Hebrew. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country or fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Now, first of all, note, she heard. She heard something. Remember the, the first five verses where they left her, where we were last week at the end of those verses, she was in the tomb of despair. When God goes to work, when we are in the tomb, when we need resurrection, he speaks. Just as in Genesis 1, when everything was, was in chaos and darkness and, and, and the void and, and there was no life-giving aspects to the world, God said, God's word begins to work at bringing life. Naomi heard. She heard something. Chad Bird comments this way, he says, Into the cosmos, cosmos of darkness and hopelessness, the whisper of an ancient song of liberation and joy was in the wind once more. She heard this song in the wind, this word that God was at work back in Judah. In the darkness of despair, God speaks. And if we hear, the seed of hope germinates. 
Twice Moab is mentioned by name. That's missed in the NIV because it's not proper in English to be so redundant. But it's redundant because in Hebrew that's a point of emphasis. In the land of Moab. Oh, don't forget, don't miss the point that I said in the land of Moab. It was an oral tradition, so you had to make sure the audience was tracking with you as you went along. She heard about God's visitation upon his people all the way from Moab. No doubt the people of Moab had already heard that there was famine in the land of Judah, but now they have heard that God had visited his people. What God does in the world, even among his people, is on display before a watching world, even among those who are not his people. What his people do is also often on display. It always really is on display. Either God's name is honored by what we do, or it is dishonored or blasphemed by how we live our lives among the nations. And because, of, because of us, people will think well of God or poorly of God. Hence we pray, your name be hallowed. Your name. Lord, don't let your name be blasphemed because of us, but let your name be honored among the nations because of us. What what did Naomi hear in the fields of Moab? That God had visited his people. When God visits his people, things happen. When God visits his people, things happen. Occasionally we might read that he visits them in judgment. That is no doubt the case from time to time. And that's not good. More often it means an answer to prayer or deliverance from captivity. The NIV puts it this way, had come to the aid of his people, and that's perfectly good as far as it goes, but since this language is used so many different places in the Old Testament and then it's picked up in the New, I want to use the more literal as the ESV has visited because it's a theme throughout Scripture and it's important to catch themes and come to his aid. the aid of his people doesn't communicate that theme as we will see it throughout Scripture. So for instance... Genesis 21.1, the Lord visited Sarah and, uh, as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he promised, which is he gave her the promised son. And then in Genesis uh, 50, we read, Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land. In other words, this is the exodus, the deliverance from captivity to Egypt, uh, to the land that he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit. When the people heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads in worship. They knew if God has visited, deliverance is about to happen. And then finally, the very next book after Ruth, we read in 1 Samuel chapter 2, Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons, and two daughters. So there again you see this, this life, this future life coming from her womb as a result of God's visitation, just like we saw with Sarah. When God visits his people, it means deliverance from evil or judgment, or, or it means judgment if they are doing evil. And in the case of Sarah and Hannah, a child of promise is given. 
We, we also see this in the New Testament. Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, said about Jesus, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And then he finishes that song, which began essentially as I read. He says, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. Note this language of visitation in both the beginning and the end of his, his prophecy, his song. To give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. But God, his visitation not only brings deliverance, his visitation requires a response. On his Palm Sunday ride into Jerusalem, Jesus Pause to weep over the city, announcing, sadly, its destruction. And why? He says, because you did not recognize, you did not know or recognize the time of your visitation. You see, Naomi recognized when she heard that God had visited his people. Some may have heard and merely thought it thundered. Or, as it were, they may have heard, oh, there's food. And, oh, you know, yeah. El Nino. Or, you know, uh, wow, sure glad the, the winds changed direction. Oh, that may be well and true. But Naomi saw who was behind that. She knew the wind maker, and she knew that God had visited his people. The problem we often have with God's visitation is that we don't recognize it. That is frequently because of what could be called the scandal of the ordinary. In Luke 4, Jesus declares in his hometown synagogue, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. But the response of the people by the time you get to the end of that chapter is, isn't this Joseph's son? Then they want to throw him off a cliff. Why? He was too ordinary. He was too ordinary. In Acts 7, Stephen, the first martyr after Christ, points out that this was the same problem that Moses had. Telling how God sent Moses to deliver the people, Stephen says, Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. Why? The scandal of the ordinary. Listen, the next day Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, who made you ruler and judge over us? It's way too ordinary. Just, just like us. Who do you think you are? Is this not Joseph's son? Would we have recognized God's visitation as Naomi did? Naomi recognized God's visitation in response to what she heard. The whisper of an ancient song of liberation and joy was in the wind once more, as Chad Bird put it. She heard it in her despair. She got up and she followed its call. The Lord planted a seed of hope through the word that Naomi heard. Naomi, like Abram of old, arose and went. Orpah and Ruth also arose with her and started on their way. The next scene begins with the three of them somewhere between Moab and the land of Judah. They've joined the multitudes in the valley of decision. And let's look at our second point, counting the cost. Go, be blessed. 
Naomi tells them. Verses 8 through 10. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. Now, why did Naomi wait until this midway point to tell them to go home? Maybe it would not have been, uh, maybe it would have been more dangerous to travel through Moab by herself without these two Moabite women with her. Maybe, but we don't know that. Maybe she just couldn't bring herself to sending them off. But we don't know that. But what it did do is it put them in between, which requires a choice between going back and going forward. It's not a matter of just staying put and doing nothing or going forward. It's either go back or go forward. This first instruction to her daughters-in-law is a blessing. Abram had been told in Genesis, Yahweh bless you as you go back. Go back to your mother's house. Now we expect father's house. Typically that would be how it would read. But mother's house is not unheard of. It's, 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 it's not common, but it's, it's still, you know, it, it's found. It could mean that their fathers had also died, but not likely since the phrase is used regarding Rebecca's, Re, Rebecca refers to her mother's house in Genesis, where her father was very much alive. Uh, more likely, it highlights the, the human choice between their own mom and Naomi, their mother-in-law. May Yahweh show you Kindness, chesed, the steadfast love of the covenant. They had shown chesed to their dead husbands and to Naomi, this steadfast love, this covenant love. Their showing of kindness to their dead husbands likely included both while they were alive, in other words, you showed love to your dead husbands while they were alive, but also in the very burial and in showing Naomi love after their death. So they showed love to their husbands both in life and in death. Israelite burial practice were, practices were quite different from Moabite practices, so they would have had to accommodate, they would have had to do something different than what they would have normally done in regard to their dead husbands. Naomi asked for a specific kindness from the Lord. May the Lord grant to each of you that you will find rest in the house of your husband, implied your new husband. The desire is sincere, but there is irony in it. They had all three been married, and that has resulted in anything but rest so far. But may the Lord grant you rest in the house of your husband. They wept bitterly and told her that they, weren't, they would go with her. Said, forget about it. We're not going back. We're going with you. They made a decision. And the next thing we read is Naomi had them fill out a commitment card and they turned it into the... No, doesn't, doesn't say that. And don't miss this in their response. We will return with you to your people. Orpah and Ruth understood this as a decision to be joined to one people or the other. To one people or the other. They are Moabites. Naomi is an Israelite. And as we'll see momentarily, to belong to one people or another means that you either belong to one God or the other. It's not a matter of just belonging to a people, but whoever the people are that you belong to, you belong to their God. 
We don't think that way in our very individualistic way of thinking. But it's actually far more historically been far more the view of people in the world than it would be today. We could spend a lot of time talking about that, but I won't. It's still true today that even though, even though people are not defined by national boundaries or ethnic boundaries, defined by faith, but it is still true that the people to whom you belong, that is who you worship, is their God. You might say, well, I'm a Christian. Do you belong to the people who claim Christ? If you do not, then what people do you belong to? That is your God. And that challenges us. To belong to Christ is to belong to a people. More on that in a moment. Naomi's urging for them to go be blessed back home is met with refusal by by both of them. So she continues. And this is a sub point is there's nothing in it for you. Look at verses 11 through 14. But Naomi said, turn back my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in the womb and that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. The first appeal was a positive declaration of blessing on them in going back. This one, (coughs) excuse me, is a negative declaration about what will happen if they follow Naomi. Naomi is essentially asking, what's in it for you? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Now, they had a practice. It's called Leverite marriage. It uh, has nothing to do with the Levites. It, it, it's just from the word that meant brother-in-law. So if, if somebody's husband, if a, if a woman's husband dies uh, and he has a living brother, then that brother would marry her so that she could bear a son in the name of the, uh, the dead husband so that that line would be carried on. Now that just seems really bizarre to us. But in the ancient world, you have to understand that without that law being carried out without people actually fulfilling that and we'll see more about this later in the book of Ruth without people actually doing that these women would be left in dire poverty would very likely go into such great debt that they would have to be sold they would then be sold into slavery to pay that debt and usually there was no getting out of that debt even by going into slavery it would never be paid off so this is Dire. It's not just a conversation. Hey, you know, it'd be nice if you got married, but you don't have a good chance. I mean, the single life is a good option for you, though. No, it wasn't. It was a bad option in that world for them. And so, hey, even if I had sons in my womb, but I don't. I don't have them. But then she goes on to say, even if I did bear a son, would you... Basically, would you wait 15 or 20 years for him to grow up? No way. No way. You're not going to wait that long. Her point is clear. There's nothing in it for you. Remember Satan's question of God when the Lord says, Have you considered my servant Job? Satan asked, 
Does Job fear God for nothing? In other words, would Job love you if there was nothing in it for him? Now, if you go through the book of Job, you discover the answer to that question is, yes, he would. He would, in fact, do that. And, of course, that's true of Jesus. But what we discover here is that it's also true of Ruth. Orpah, or obstinate, and Ruth, or we might call her reliable. We talked about that last week. That's what their names mean are effectively being asked the same question. Would you come with me and be part of my people and my God if there is nothing in it for you? Because there isn't, is what she's saying. I'm also reminded of Jesus' evangelistic methods. In Luke 14, beginning in verse 25, Jesus turns to the large crowds that were going with Jesus, just like Ruth and Orpah were going with Naomi. And he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my Who do you love, me or your mother? Because for, her to go, for them to go with Naomi means they're forsaking their mother. But for them to stay home means they're forsaking Naomi. It's a real choice. They find themselves in the valley of decision. Jesus, after two parables about counting the cost before presuming to follow Jesus, adds, in the same way those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciple or disciples. This turns many modern evangelistic methods on their head. Ruth and Orpah must count the cost. Naomi, like Jesus, puts the cost before them. Orpah and Ruth represent two kinds of followers. They both said, no, we're going to follow you. So they're both would-be followers, there's no doubt. Recall the rich young ruler, another evangelistic technique of Jesus. What must I do to inherit the life of the coming age? Jesus tells him in, in uh, Luke 18, 22, you still lack one thing. Every, sell everything you have and give to the poor. And you'll have treasure in heaven. Can you imagine that? We're going to have an altar call at the end of the sermon. Everybody who comes forward. Okay, now all of you listen closely. Go sell everything you have. Give it to the poor and then follow Jesus. <laughs> I mean, this, 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 this is crazy. It's not, this is, well, Jesus, don't you understand? You could have this guy on your team. He's wealthy. This could work out well for you. When he heard this. He became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. In other words, yep, it's impossible. The rich man had to count the cost. It would cost him everything in this life to gain the life of the coming age, and he was unwilling until now, Orpah and Ruth, obstinate and reliable, had, act, had acted in unison. You could not tell them apart. Often you cannot tell would-be followers of Jesus, one from the other. They both followed Naomi at the start of the journey. They both refused to leave Naomi after the appeal of what might be uh, in Moab for them and the blessing of the Lord. But after counting the cost of following Naomi back, the two daughters-in-law become distinct. Obstinate heads back, reliable sticks with Naomi. 
And this leads to Naomi's final appeal, verse 15. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. While the people of God are not determined by, by national boundaries, Naomi knows that to return to Moab and to her people is a return to Moab's gods. Chamosh, I think that's how it's pronounced, is most likely the god of Moab that is being referenced. See, that's what the decision is really all about. See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. There's no such thing as a private faith. To be a Christian is to belong to a people. Every bit as much today as it did then. Now that people is called the church. And it is costly today also. In all our methods for choosing a church, we can't forget that the church can never compete with the world on the level of what's in it for me. See, most of our ways of going about finding a church, we move to an area, is what's in it for me? Now, I'm, I'm just saying that's just what I read in books. Here's how people choose churches. Am I this? Does it do this for me? Does it do this for me? But if we're trying to compete on the level of what's in it for me, I've got news for you. We can't compete there. The world can offer much better. Have you checked out the entertainment industry? We ain't got nothing on them. Ruth understood well that faith is not private, as we can see from her response, and that leads to our final heading, the faith that follows. Read with me in verse 16. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or, re or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. Is, is Ruth's declaration, is Ruth's vow to Naomi here any different than what, it is, what is required to become a Christian? I don't think so. Are we not called to bind ourselves to a new people? Doesn't baptism symbolize that our life, as far as we've known it, is over, put to death, and buried in a tomb? In that tomb, we are joined to Christ in his death, buried with him. Our entire future is tied to him. And Ruth's entire future is staked on Naomi, a seemingly foolish choice. One as good as dead. And in the eyes of the world, are we not doing the same? Staking our choice on somebody who's dead. Remember, when Jesus, passing by the tax collector's booth, he calls out to Levi, the tax collector, follow me. What do we read? Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Commenting on that, Bonhoeffer wrote this. The call goes out, and without any further ado, the obedient deed of the one called follows. Listen. The disciple's answer, this is Levi, is not spoken 
It is not a spoken confession of faith in Jesus. Instead, it is the obedient deed. Ruth's declaration, followed as it was with immediate action, is much the same. Ruth has counted the cost and is following Naomi. Look at Ruth's declaration. Basically, she starts with, stop it. Stop this nonsense about me going back. Not going to happen. Wherever you go, I will go. Where you lodge, the implication of that word lodge is essentially, um, even if you're moved around from hovel to hovel, I will lodge with you. No matter how this works out, I'm with you, in other words. In good and in bad. Verse 16c reads this way, literally. Your people, my people. Your God, my God. If that wasn't clear enough, where you are buried, I will be buried. Effectively, not even death will separate us. That last line that reads, may the Lord do thus, which probably was accompanied by something like this. <laughs> may the Lord do thus, or maybe she was pointing at a tomb, I don't know which. But may the Lord do thus to me if anything but death separates us. It could be translated this way. May the Lord do thus to me if even death separates us. And I think that actually fits the context better since she just talked, said, where you're buried, I will be buried. Which is to say, if even death separates us, well, that won't even separate us. In the ancient world where one gets buried has everything to do with one's God and, and people. Death was often referred to as being gathered to one's people. So I'll be buried with you. In other words... You have so become my people that I will actually be buried with you. I'm not asking that my bones be brought back to Moab. See, remember, Jacob and Joseph required them to swear an oath to say, you're going to bring my bones with you back to the promised land. Why? That was important to them to be buried in the land of their people because of the God that they worshipped. Ruth is saying, I'm joined to you, your people and your God, in life and in death. Ruth didn't just join a people in the vague sense of the word. You know, I'm joining a people. She joined herself to a very particular person. Naomi and all that, she, that, that did and didn't come with her. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm being joined to your people. But I'm not hanging out with you anymore because like all the men around you die. Seem to be bitter because God's hand is against you. So I'm going to go find me someone who's more blessed than you. No. She wasn't offended by the scandal of the ordinary. Naomi was so ordinary, she was more than ordinary. Her life was not the one you'd want to join yourself to. 13, that the hand of the Lord has been against her. Ruth might wonder, why would I join myself to such a God or a family when Naomi's family had to come to Moab to be fed? And that there was food in Judah wasn't appealing to Ruth since there was an abundance of food in Moab anyway. And when the Lord appeared, think of this, when the Lord appeared to Abram and said, leave your, your country, leave your people, leave your gods, leave your father's house and go to the place I'll show you, well, he had a, like this visitation from God, and he obeyed and went. Ruth doesn't have any such visitation. 
She's merely been instructed for 10 years in, in the home of uh, her husband and, and Naomi and, and probably been taught much of the law. But by people who are suffering, her husband's dying. And yet she does what Abram did. She got up and went and forsook her people and her gods and went to the land. It was rather ordinary, Ruth's call. Yet she rose with Naomi, obeying some kind of inward call from God. Have you recognized God's visitation? Or is it too ordinary? One of the biggest objections to the Bible today is, it's just the words of man. The scandal of the ordinary. Do you hear God's visitation when you hear the words of God? Have you left a life and a people to follow Jesus as Ruth did? Have you joined yourself to a people in following Jesus? See, people often stumble over the church because of the scandal of the ordinary. I like Jesus, however they've imagined him to be, usually not the actual one that existed or exists. I like Jesus, but not the church, they might say. Church is way too ordinary. I suspect had they met the Jesus on earth, he'd have been way too ordinary too. Have you joined a community, covenanted with a people, a specific people like Naomi and all her problems? I mean, not just joined to the church in some vague sense, but a church, a particular church with all its problems. Have you responded to the call of Jesus with obedient action? You might say, I haven't heard that call. Yet you have. You heard it today through my scandalously ordinary voice. And either you just thought it was noise or you recognized God's visitation. Do you have the faith that follows? Or are you easily dissuaded, turned back? Truth is, God gave us stories like this story because we all find ourselves in the valley of decision more than once in our lives. The purpose is to help us follow. Amen? This morning we have the privilege of coming to the, the communion table. God has invited us to his table. He's welcomed us to his table, to, to his life. To fellowship with somebody at the table is to let them become intimate with you in your life. And God has invited us to his table. We read this in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16. Paul says to the Corinthians who, who, who've been fighting with each other. There's a lot of division in the church. And he says this. He says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? But then notice this play on that. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. This meal of Christ, if you will, is a picture for us of the reality that to be joined to Christ is to participate in the scandal of his crucifixion, his blood being shed. It's a participation in the blood of Christ. We are drinking of what, from a human perspective, was his shame. 
Then Paul says that we also participate through the bread in the body of Christ, but then immediately transforms that into the ordinary. We, are, uh, we, we who are many are one body. We are joined to a people if we are joined to Christ, is his point. When we are joined to Christ by eating that bread, we're joined to his body because we all partake of that together. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul's point is that it's a particular people. The ones that they were fighting with. The ones that they thought they were superior to. Yeah, those people. Those are the ones you're joined to. Wow. Let's, well, on the night that he was betrayed, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11, the Lord Jesus took bread and he broke it. He says, this is my body which is for you. It's for you. And he takes the cup and he says, this is the new covenant in my blood. This blood was shed for the remission of the sins of many. We come to this table recognizing that we have been invited by God through the death, the shed blood and broken body of the Lord Jesus to God's table. But in so coming, we are joined to a people who is also there by His grace. Lord, thank you for welcoming us to your table, into your life, and help us to welcome one another into our lives. Help us in partaking of this meal to remember that we are joined to a people as much as we are joined to our God. In Jesus' name, amen.